Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Nimbus podcast, live from the kitchen here at Nimbus Records. Each month, we will be discussing releases and the topics that these releases bring up. Although these podcasts are intended to expand on our releases, expect some really interesting tangential discussions that only these teas and biscuits will be able to enable. This week, we were joined by Simon Callahan and Hiro Takenuchi, who were great company. Their Twitters will be linked below. Someone walked in on us uh, at the 20 minute mark around then, which explains the sudden random burst of laughter that you'll hear. Please look up, put some support, or explore the back catalogue of these performers at uh, the Nimbus Records website, which will be linked below. There's an accompanying Spotify playlist to this podcast featuring the songs in their entirety. Like, subscribe, and rate us on whatever platform you're listening on. Otherwise, it only remains to say that we hope you enjoy this first conversation between me, Adrian, and our guests. Uh, would you like to introduce yourselves quickly? Or? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Simon Callahan. I'm a pianist. And I'm here with uh, with Hero making a two pianos recording. Hello. Yes, uh, we make up this um, Parnassus piano duo. <laughs> and we're pl- uh, playing the pieces by some in- exciting um, British composers. Mm. Unknown. Unknown, indeed, Unknown, yes. Yeah. And unrecorded. How did you and settle on uh, the composers? Just out of interest? Well, this is Hero's... Um, well, pet. And projects, yeah. yes, indeed, yes. Well, I actually uh, um, came across his name. In fact, I can't remember how I came across that name, but um, someone told me, but it's Sherwood. It's Sherwood, yeah. <coughs> and then um, as one of the unrecorded um, greats, and then the, the, this, um, well, lost child of the music history, because he was half, um, um, as his name, Percy Sherwood, suggests he was half English, but he, he was half German. He grew up in Germany, in Dresden. And, um, well, he was an established pianist and composer. Um, but when the, the First World War um, broke out, uh, he was, well, essentially stranded in England. And then he never went back to Germany and, until he died in uh, 1939. So... Um, and genuinely forgotten. We don't. Completely we don't really know anything about yeah. Percy Sherwood's music. I actually recorded his uh, second piano concerto from 1932. That was actually the first ever recorded mm. sound mm. of um, you know, this P- Percy Sherwood's it music. It is fascinating how much unknown music there is. Mm. Still, yeah. our musical diet is so small. We all understand that concert programs and a lot of recordings and broadcasts all tread the same ground over and over again. But it it's, is amazing, even for us, who work in this field all day, every day, to suddenly come across composers who we, we say, who? Never heard of this person. And who are actually very good. Yes. It's not lost because it's terrible. Yeah. It's actually really good music. So watch out for Percy Sherwood. Definitely. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, I've been impressed today. First time I've heard it. That's a good step forward. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of the Lyriter program, actually, that we're we're forming at Nimbus at the moment to sort of promote these less well-known composers. Well, that's right. Lyriter has always, since it was formed in the 60s, been concerned with British music. Um, And we've decided that as we go into this new century, the thing that we should be looking for... um, 
are ex exactly these kinds of composers, British composers, of whom there are many who have either disappeared completely, as in the case of Percy Sherwood, or are known only for one or two pieces, but behind that there's a huge archive of, of music that uh, is never performed, perhaps not even published. Uh, and of course, if something hasn't been published, its opportunities for performance are enormously limited because you can't get hold of the music. So something that Lyrot will be doing over the next um, 10 or 15 years is looking deep into what we are missing, what we've lost, and perhaps even publishing some of the scores as well so that people who do like the music um, can also perform it themselves. of the amazing Yonti Solomon, South African pianist, who's now no longer with us, very sadly, um, at the Royal College of Music uh, in London. And Yonti, um, I think we originally came together, actually, because Hero was performing in the concerto competition at college, and Yonti was looking for someone to be his orchestra, to accompany him on second piano. Um, so we actually began our friendship, I guess, um, through two pianos. So it's nice to be to be still doing exactly that kind of project yes, together uh, so curiously, much later. that repertoire was also a rare one. It was the Metna's third concert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so still rare, <laughs> even today. Yeah. Yes. So we've come full circle and still yeah, coming back to rare two pianos music. Mm. <laughs> we were discussing last night how two pianos used to be such a staple and regular part of concert life in the 20s, 30s, 40s, perhaps even in the 50s. Um, there were many very famous piano teams, two piano teams. It's almost faded away um, now. There are a few people who mm. who do it from time to time, but very few who specialise. Mm. And uh, Hero and Simon were saying that the opportunities to actually give concerts of two piano music are now limited uh, by the very fact that concert societies and concert halls that have two grand pianos in are limited. Um, it's a shame because there's some wonderful repertoire, light as well as serious repertoire mm. for two pianos. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we of course we do you know piano duet and on one piano together, but um, I much prefer two pianos. Playing that's, that's piano so, duets is yeah. so uncomfortable isn't it? <laughs> because no, no nobody is allowed to occupy the middle ground. <laughs> so ev everybody, I mean, just physically, yeah. you know, yes, you have to be friendly and all of that, but. Just physically, your your hands are actually twisted. Exactly. Playing duets is so hard. Mm. Um, I, I, I do it as well with Martin Jones, and we always leave the duet stuff till the last on recording sessions because <laughs> it's always the stuff that makes your arms hurt. Mm. Well, I think it's just the, the, the sonorities that are available in, in, a, in two piano ensemble are always going to be... Yeah. Well, of course, it's double one piano, obviously, yeah. so you're... There's a whole world of sound which <laughs> it's, it's exciting. It's so invigorating to be part of. 
Well, Charlotte and I have been working together for about five or six years, and um, it's really <clears throat> been a wonderful experience again of discovering unknown music for me, um, these Japanese songs. Um, they are Japanese texts set in a Western style. At, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, a group of young Japanese composers were sent out of the country, I assume with government sponsorship, and some of them went to Paris, some went to Vienna, some went to Moscow, some came to England, and they studied here Western classical music. And on returning to Japan in the 20s, 30s, um, they started writing in a Western style, or a style that European audiences would be familiar with. So if you're familiar with Schubert or Schumann or Mendelssohn or Brahms, you will recognize the musical style of these songs, but setting very important and very beautiful Japanese texts. Um, I think a lot of the songs were originally intended, and Hiro actually can correct me if I'm wrong, were intended for younger audiences, for children, mm, yeah. and have subsequently disappeared somewhat. I suppose there's a lot of, of, of musical um, moments, particularly that are intended for younger audiences. As, as the younger audiences progress and turn to new things, they tend to leave that kind of music behind. Um, however, it is very beautiful and there's lots and lots of it. Um, the most famous composer associated with this would be Yamada, um, and he's very well known as an opera composer as well. The interesting thing about performing these songs in Japan, which Charlotte does a great deal, she goes two or three times a year, she will have audiences, audience members in her, in their 60s, come up to her at every single concert and say, how wonderful, my mother used to sing this song to me, or I, I heard this song when I was young, I haven't heard it since, it's so wonderful to hear this music. So we decided um, to to put um, a CD together containing some of the, the most beautiful uh, of these songs. It's called Furusato, which means homeland, um, a very common concept for all musicians. And uh, I don't think there's anything in it that should scare anybody, you know, thinking, oh, Japanese music, maybe I won't like it. Um, it's really simple, straightforward, elegant, beautiful, um, with definitely uh, a Japanese um, sensibility to the music, but completely understandable for us. I recommend you listen maybe to the ice cream song. It's <laughs> <laughs> what I wanted to discuss in particular. Yes. Listening to the CD, um, I loved how beautifully simplistic the songs were a lot of them and mm -hmm. also very um very very simple and almost innocent sounding yep. and even though i obviously had no idea what was being sung about apart from reading the notes afterwards um the difference in a pickup in tempo and energy to the ice cream songs really marked <laughs> it's very sort of tranquil sort of sweet innocent and then the ice cream song comes along and everything sort of lifts up a little bit more but there's plenty of humor in these mm. songs, then they're, they're not they're not all serious uh, by any means. A lot of them are wistful, um, the sense that a dragonfly can evoke powerful memories of home. But this is a common concept for for all 
poetry um, around the world, something that sparks off a, a remembrance. Mm. Um, I think in Japanese texts it tends to be very concise, very concentrated expression, um, which is very good for a musical composition. <laughs> Obviously not prepared for this encounter, and I was really quite shocked, but in a, in a pleasant way. And uh, but as you said, you're absolutely right. These um, have this almost nostalgic tinge, hmm. al al almost all of them. These you're things. very yearning, very wistful. Yes, yeah. and um, it's they occupy a curious in, you know, place in our musical culture, is because they're not folk music, and they're not not you know, popular pop tunes either it's just something to do with it's it's something we actually as you said uh, associate with our childhood and um, because quite often these songs are um, taught at schools too and um, and that's probably how I remember them <laughs> and this you know childhood but then there's I, I still remember this honest as you again said, these texts are really, really honest um, remembrance of things that are not not trying to impress or anything. It's just you know really mm. simple, but uh, in fact, some of these songs were and um, based on the the poems by rather you know, prominent oh, yeah, poets indeed. of the day. Yeah. So, yes. and they're, they're really beautiful, but never you know, over the top. So, I um, yeah I I to be fair I haven't heard most of those for a long long <laughs> right. time. Right. Right. You're about to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you are.
So moving on, um, I'd like to discuss the uh, trio, if that's all right, the trio record that we have, also coming out on Nimbus Records. Um, something in a similar sort of vein, I think, to what we were discussing before, moving in a, a fun sort of direction, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, trio repertoire, by which we mean piano, violin, cello, has a reputation along with string quartets as, as, being, as containing some of the most serious utterances of any composer. Um, you think of the Beethoven trios, the Brahms trios, the Mendelssohn and Schumann trios. These are serious, important pieces. Um, and the trio that we're recording at the moment, which is uh, Haggai Shaham on violin and Arnon Erez, his pianist, and joined by Raphael Walfisch on cello, they ha have been recording some of this serious repertoire with us. Um, we have all the Brahms trios and we're about to start doing all the Beethoven trios, but they wanted something which they could present to their audiences which was more um, relaxed. And the biggest piece on this new record is exactly that. It's the Vorjak trio known as the Dumki. Um, it's a series of movements, uh, all of which are related to Czech dances. Um, it's, in a sense, a serious grown-up piece, but in another sense, it's, it's entirely fun. Um, not to be taken with enormous um, gravitas. And uh, we had great fun recording it. And it's the first time they've ever done anything uh, like this. And uh, the, the fact that they've known each other and come from the same kind of background musically means that they are able to play this kind of music with it infectious sense of fun that it needs um, you know, they, they pull each other's leg quite a lot <laughs> <laughs> They, of course, are an, uh, what some people have described as an old-style trio. In other words, this is a trio of three soloists who come together to play trios and spend a few weeks each year doing it. It's very different from the, tr the people that have set out to be a trio right from the outset in their careers and do nothing else but play trios. Both perfectly valid, but this idea of a celebrity trio where three soloists have come together and, and a, a trio is just a part of what they do. This is very much old style and the first half of the 20th century was full of this kind of trio. Uh, I suppose because there wasn't a full-time occupation for a piano trio. Um, and so Rubinstein and Casals and others, you know, Corto, Thibault, all of these people would uh, come together occasionally to play trios. And it, it does create a slightly different effect, I think, when I work with what I would call a professional full-time trio, it's different from working with three p 
people who've just come together because it's something they like to do. Um, it's, n it's nothing that you could put your finger on and say, ah, that's the difference. But I think because celebrity-style trios are not aiming all the time for perfect polish, um, which comes with hours and hours and years and years of working together, they're much more concerned with um, enjoying and presenting the music, um, even though there might be a few accidents along the way. I'm not trying to suggest that that's something that, that, that they enjoy, but it, there's a, that's a subtle difference, um, and it's quite nice, I have to say. Dynamics, uh, or group dynamic, is a really interesting sort of intangible thing. In well, I think it, you, could, you could ask the, the same thing of Hero and Simon. Do you consider yourselves to be a, a piano duo that spend all of your time living, working, thinking, breathing piano duo? Or do you just come together because <coughs> there's some repertoire you want to do? I, th I think for me, um, the only ensemble that I think uh, works best being a regular ensemble is a string quartet. I've seen a lot of string quartet concerts where the group is comprised of uh, four soloists. And in my humble opinion, that doesn't work. It's very hard. Um, but I think, first of all, if we spent all of our musical lives playing two pianos music, we would hate each other and one of us would kill the other. But on a, <laughs> We might ask on you a, to elaborate on that. <laughs> but on a slightly lighter note, I guess what would end up happening is that we would uh, strive to become like each other. And then the performance of a two piano piece would be so incredibly, um, sort of, we would be so blended into each other that it would just, would just be like a big version of a one piano piece. Whereas in this recording, I think what we're bringing and what sometimes results in arguments in our rehearsals is that we're bringing two completely different perspectives to the same music, right. which results ultimately, I think, in something which is quite successful and which so far I think we're, we're proud of you know, how things are going. And could often, go downhill from now, but let's see. Yeah, and often, the comp when the composers actually write uh, pieces for two pianos, I don't think they expect us to be a completely unified, you know, am amalgamated, you know, one. No, and they're not yeah, written. No, they're generally not, not written for established two piano duos. Yeah, so like string yeah. quartets may have been written for a string yeah. quartet, but equally, as you said, with trios, they probably weren't written mm. either. A lot of them for established trios, but you know, some of Beethoven's friends would just get together and play them. Um, so it's mm. completely different. That's, that's a whole other and rather wonderful discussion. What What is the balance between perfect polish and integration and preserved and celebrated individuality? It's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a, yes, that's, yeah, it's a debate. Yeah, we all day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure we'd ever reach a conclusion. No, but. to the uh, Maconkey, the uh, opera in one act. Yes, Elizabeth Maconkey, along with um, 
certainly three other female composers that I ought to mention in the same breath, Grace Williams, Elizabeth Lutyens, um, and Phyllis Tate, all working in the middle of the 20th century, were very well known and, and appropriately supported by uh, orchestras, institutions, um, commissioning bodies, but have whose music has, again, fallen somewhat out of favour. Uh, hopefully, the, the new and entirely um, well... <laughs> we, need, we need to recognise that there have always been um, important contributions made to musical life by women, whether it be performing or composing. And hopefully, the impetus that's growing behind that will bring some of these composers back prominence. Elizabeth McConkie's one-act opera um, was first performed in Croydon um, and is a setting of a story of uh, Eloise and Abelard and uh, those people who know the story will not be surprised to hear me say that of course the, the uh, central dramatic element of the plot is the castration of the uh, male character um, for uh, falling in love with um, a student um, and betraying the trust of Eloise's guardian uh, and the guardian decides that he should unman Abelard. Nobody knows whether this really is a a real story or whether it's a Tristan and Isolde, Arthur and Guinevere type um, of universal um, mm. concept. Mm. Uh, it's, a f it's a very dramatic opera, um, very short, very easy to take in. Um, I don't know that it's actually been performed at all since it had its premiere in the 1960s. And this recording is a recording that was broadcast on the BBC of that premiere. Um, mm. So very well rehearsed, obviously, um, to be given as a premiere, and, uh, and a super single performance. Um, it was only recorded the once, and we have it. Um, anybody wondering you know, what Elizabeth McConkie's music sounds like would do well to start here. Mm. For your family are loving Which is 
uh, for me personally, quite jarring, actually being able to understand what people are singing about <laughs> for once in an opera, uh, but in a very interesting, exciting sort of way. It's really... Do you actually prefer, then, to hear vocal music in a language you don't understand? i not sure I prefer it necessarily. I think I'm used to it now, to the extent to which there's this sort of imagining that goes along with listening to opera of what it is about within the story, sort of fleshing it out in your own imagination almost. Do you imagine it would help or hinder if you went to a performance of a Wagner opera and it was in English? I think almost certainly hinder. I Why? Agree. Um, Why? Well, I went to see uh, Barbara of Seville that my friend was singing in English National Opera and of course that was in entirely in English. Yeah. And I think it's just because um, the, the, the colour and the the nuance and the feel of the language is so connected with the music that especially if it's in a slightly below par translation <laughs> even though you can understand that if something originally sounded very sophisticated and exquisite and embedded in the music it suddenly you know you suddenly say now I'm going to pop out for a walk love <laughs> and it's sort of <laughs> it's so yeah. far from the music yes but, but moving on from the banalities which can creep in mm. in everyday language do you not understand or appreciate that a singer might be colouring the musical line because of the words and if you don't actually no. understand the words then you don't understand why the singer is shaping it or colouring oh, it absolutely. Yeah, of course um, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, it's unsolvable, of course. Mm, yeah. uh, it, can't, it, it, it doesn't have a, a proper solution. But mm. I think English people in particular, we have, we're such lazy linguists mm. um, because we, we just don't have to learn other languages. Everywhere you go, somebody speaks English. Uh, it, we, we have got used to listening without understanding. Mm. And we're perfectly mm. happy to listen to Lieder in German and French melody uh, and terribly lazy about actually understanding what's being said. I remember um, there was that, this book about uh, little stories about Bach and collection of little anecdotes and stories by someone called Harry Kupferberg and he actually, I remember reading that he I, in his childhood I, he still remembers the performance of um, um, the, the St. Matthew Passion in English and he's never experienced that impact he felt and since i mean he's seen a lot of you know, you know higher level performances but that performance he will still always remember he said and because it was in english and yes of course it has to be a good translation and, but um, i i'm actually in favor especially because i re remember this story and also in another composer who talked about this it was metner who actually preferred um his songs, who you know, he wrote over a hundred um, the leader and in both Russian and German, but then he actually said very clearly that if he if if it's done in the UK, I think I prefer the songs to be done in English. He yeah. actually said that. Mm -hmm. So, so there are composers who actually see them yep. that way too. So. Yes, mm -hmm. I think it's terribly important. Uh, although I imagine that there would be howls of protest if you went to a Schubert leader recital and somebody <laughs> was going to sing Schoenbrunnerin in English or Winterreiser in English. But if you get a good translation or even a, a complete reworking mm. of the text, I think it can be an even yes. more powerful experience mm, because you don't have to 
try and remind yourself what's being said. Yeah. It's, it's immediate. immediate. It's immediate. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think it is all about the quality. That's the thing we can mm. agree on. Because I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm also imagine a situation where um, you hear a rendition of something intended in German, for example, and there's a sort of syllable sort of crammed in there into a short space or stretched out mm. for too long, perhaps, or something like that, which can grate someone who actually understands the language. But perhaps that's also, from the op op opposing perspective, an English problem of just an intolerance for actually getting to appreciate these different languages. You know, maybe someone mm. from a German perspective or something like that would actually take that as it comes because it's part of language. As I said, it's an unsolvable thing. You you can barely imagine a French song being sung in any other language because the sound of the language goes so well with the, the actual composition. I can't imagine translating Foray or Debussy into English. Mm. Uh, German into English works much better. Um, but still, I would like to be able to speak any of these languages well enough to be getting that immediate that's impact. the way to solve it, isn't it? It's that, a learned language. So there is a solution. <laughs> yes. But the solution is an incredibly... Um, yes. yeah, oh, dear, yes. A lot of hard work. <laughs> Just learn all the languages. Right, that's well, yes. Forgetting of Alton Hayes, perhaps. I don't know whether it's strange. Um, it, it's inevitable in some ways that entertainers who are, you know, have been gone a long time, um, are not well remembered either by the people who knew them at the time or by the next generation who didn't know them. So Elton Hayes, enormously popular entertainer. I'm, I'm quite sure heroes never heard of Elton Hayes. Well, probably you Sadly, are I, far I, too young to have heard of Elton Hayes I'm as not well. sure, but I also haven't heard of him. Right. Mm. Sorry I, to say. There is one track that I might play you that you might recognise. Elton Hayes was a light music entertainer. He sang with a guitar. Um, you could call him a crooner. You could call him a kind of you know, modern-day minstrel. 
Um, he had a quite a short career, but um, very busy one, both in live performances and uh, in in broadcasting. Not very much in recording. Um, he also perhaps his, his his most celebrated moment was when he was asked to do sing the um, the minstrel in the Hollywood movie of Robin Hood. Alan mm-hmm. Adair. He, he he appears on the screen as the as the as the Sherwood minstrel. Um, he made very few commercial recordings, just a handful for a, a, a label called Parlophone in the 50s. But he did make a lot of regular broadcasts for the BBC. Again, we're back to children's entertainment. He was asked to make these 20-minute programmes, which he did every week um, during the 19, early 1950s, about 52, 53, 54. And in our archive here, we have um, a found a complete set of acetates. So these are cut discs rather than tapes. Um, of uh, several years' worth of these um, children's entertainment performances in which he sings and introduces songs. French songs, Spanish songs, English songs, folk songs, serious songs, comedy songs, whatever took his fancy. And this now constitutes probably the biggest bulk of Elton Hayes that still survives. And we decided that we would put it out as a series of CDs. Um, Certainly the biggest tribute to Elton Hayes that's that's likely to turn up um, and contained within it is probably his most famous performance which is of a setting uh, of the Edward Lear poem The Owl and the Pussycat. Um, this this became um, something of a, a signature piece for him and it's probably the one piece that I can play you that you, you might say oh yeah. The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar. Oh, lovely pussy, oh pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are. Pussy said to the owl, you elegant fowl, how charmingly sweet you sing. Oh, let us be married too long, we have tarried, but what shall we do for a ring? They sailed away for a year and a day to the land where the bong tree grows. And there in a wood, a piggy wig stood with a ring at the end of his nose. His and that's nose, what he did on music hall stages all around the country mm-hmm. to, to thousands and thousands of people in the 50s. He, he undoubtedly could have gone on longer and perhaps gone on into, into the 60s, um, but he decided to retire. I think he became rather nervous of stage performance. He found it wasn't, didn't, wasn't a natural fit for him anymore as he got older and uh, he retired completely.
wondering when you'll be coming home again. Restless, don't know what to do. Just waiting for you. So uh, that's uh, a wrap for the January releases from Nimbus Records. Um, I'd like to say thank you very much to Simon and Hero for joining us. Taking time out of recording is very kind of you. Welcome, Brick. And uh, from Adrian and myself, say uh, goodbye and see you next uh, month. Goodbye. Sit 